Ryan. You're still here. Things must be going well enough. So we'll continue our exploration today of um, the beautiful Dharma that we are fortunate enough to have a chance to practice. So yesterday, Chaz talked about two ways of seeing the world. One way is more um, ordinary and uh, relies heavily upon conceptualization, upon naming and making sense out of things. And in this world, uh, things have density, solidity. In fact, that's a function of conceptualization, is to make things real and dense and solid so that then we know what to do with them. And then he also mentioned this other uh, way of seeing, which is more spacious. We sometimes call it emptiness. Um, but, but that word is problematic because it's not like nothing's there. It's empty of a separate self, which means relational, which Chaz talked about quite a bit, that we're always in relationship. That's what emptiness means. But, but emptiness, relationship and emptiness is like minus those barriers and shielding of the heart mind. And you know what those barriers and shielding are, right? You know, they're our old friends, greed, hatred, and delusion. And all the forms of those, that's how we that's that's how we separate ourselves out of the flow. So emptiness could be called flow also. And this kind of way of seeing the world has a certain kind of intimacy <coughs> that we kind of lose sometimes in the conceptual world. But we also talked about how these two views aren't so separate. We talk about them separately, but that they're married, <laughs> they're interrelated, that emptiness is form, form is emptiness, and the famous uh, Mahayana Sutra that probably most of you have heard. So I'll touch on these subjects some tonight and some in a couple of days, or some this afternoon, some in a couple of days. But I'm going to shift a little bit today and talk about two ways that we orient towards the world. Somewhat related, but not entirely. Um, and I'm going to call them the active and receptive, which we've been dropping in um, over the last couple of days. They also mingle with each other and depend upon each other, the active and the receptive modes of being in the world, um, of doing our practice. Uh, they support each other and work together. But before I go there, I want to go back a little bit to um, this uh, sense of um, intimacy that I mentioned when I was talking about uh, emptiness. Emptiness. 
So one of my favorite, um, I call it a koan, it's not technically a koan, but one of my favorite uh, sayings comes from the 13th century Zen master Dogen. And uh, he says that awakening is intimacy with all things. So I talk about this all the time. Some of you may have heard it a few years ago. I don't know if I talked about it a few years ago. I might have. And awakening is intimacy with all things. I think this is really one of the most profound Buddhist statements I've heard. And it's profound because um, it includes form and emptiness. Awakening is intimacy with all things. So there's that relationality, right? There's the um, the intimacy is the lack of barriers in the connection with all things. So in other words, the lack of pulling out as a separate self. But it also says all things. Form that things are form, right? So it's, it includes form. It includes emptiness and form, the statement of awakening is intimacy with all things. Well, let's go into it a little bit more. So, what is intimacy? I googled it. <laughs> Close familiarity or friendship. So, awakening is close familiarity and friendship with all things. Hmm. So what we're developing in practice is a close familiarity with all things. And we start with this very heart, body, mind. This is when we talk about moving closer, right? It's developing this intimacy, this (coughs) close familiarity, and then this friendship with all that manifests in this heart, body, mind. Intimacy is really only possible when the heart is kind. Notice it yourself. When we judge what happens, what happens? There's, there's distance right away when we judge. We've separated. So we infuse our meditation practice with that sense of kindness, which allows us to move closer to experience and become familiar with it. So sometimes this um, close familiarity with ourselves is um, a beautiful process. We discover strength that we didn't know we had. We discover spaciousness in heart and mind. We um, find that we have a capacity to relax that we never imagined and to experience joy in just simple things like a breath. And (laughs) sometimes this uh, intimacy is um, pretty wild going. Sometimes we're discovering what we've been running from. It's a big part of retreat is discovering what we've been running from. The container is made to help you discover that. So 
sometimes we are shocked <laughs> to discover um, how um, kind of chaotic and messy it is in there. This is true for most everybody. It's uh, um, it's part of the unfolding of the path. So we may be shocked by anger or grief or pettiness. We might see the pettiness of our mind or the selfishness or our ability to cause harm. And this too is um, a really great and important part of practice. If we only have this, if our practice only has the joy, the bliss, the spaciousness, the relaxation, it's like half cooked. <laughs> and if that's all we're experiencing, and we can experience that for, for a good amount of time, but if that's all we're experiencing in our practice, I'm going to be a little leery <laughs> about whether there's some bypassing going on here. Um, generally, we need we need the messiness to grow. That's that we need that. That's the compost of our practice. It's also the freedom because the the more that we can hold, the the less we have to run. And then we know true relaxation, not relaxation that is perhaps fabricated by concentration, but relaxation that comes from um, peace with the way things are. So in many ways we're healing the estrangement of um, the heart and mind. We're healing our exile. We're coming home. We're bringing everything home. We're reclaiming our um, our relationship with life. Our receptive relationship with life. And then after knowing, uh, you know, developing this intimacy with our own experience, it's, we also look out and see the world around us. And we include that in our um, field of awareness, you could say. We, 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 and how do we develop intimacy with the things around us? We let them in. We let our hearts be touched by the world by other people, by trees, by frogs. The environmentalist Paul Shepard wrote, to be present in the world means to make space for the world to be present in you. That's that receptive heart, right? Dogen says, maybe this doesn't make any sense, but you can feel it's really good. Let your heart go out and abide in things. Let things return and abide in your heart. 
that's emptiness. Let your heart go out and abide in things. Let things return and abide in your heart. And as we um, develop this intimacy within ourselves, with the world around us, everything becomes more alive. We find that the Western kind of scientific, materialistic um, view of the world is limited. Trees become alive, plants become alive, rocks become alive, maybe even tables. There's a sense of um, the the liveliness of life that we resonate with. That's emptiness, too. I'm reading a good book here, and I found a poem today by um, Ikyu Sojun. That's my Japanese pronunciation. A 15th century Japanese hermit poet. There's a lot of good Japanese hermit poets. They seem to know how to turn them out. Um, this guy was fairly a kind a counterplastic. He liked to um, kind of uh, dig at the mainstream. And here's one of his digs. <laughs> Every day, Priests minutely examine the Dharma and endlessly chant complicated sutras. Before doing that, though, they should learn how to read the love letters sent by the wind and rain, the snow and moon. They should learn how to read the love letters sent by the wind and rain, the snow and the moon. That's intimacy. That's emptiness. So we're trying to learn a kind of knowing that um, that comes out of this intimacy, and it's a different kind of knowing than we're used to. We're used to knowing, as we've said, as you know, through the thinking mind. And this kind of knowing is more intuitive, more heartfelt, and we're not taught to trust that, so we don't. <laughs> it's, it's not part of the um, dominant paradigm. First, we learn how to hear that. We, we mostly hear the clamor of our minds. But as we drop our attention into our bodies, as we have this more body-oriented awareness, we start to hear our heart and hear our intuition, and hear a kind of wisdom that comes from a quieter place than the clamoring mind.
So I want to move a little bit into what I said was the subject of the talk, Active and Receptive Mindfulness. So the way that we pay attention or the way that we develop a relationship with the world can have a more kind of active component to it or a more receptive mode to it. And both of these are really important. And so I want to talk about each one a little bit, um, kind of the strengths of, each, strengths of each one and how we can work with them. So let's look a little bit at active mindfulness. So active mindfulness is when we um, direct, you could say, direct our attention. So coming back to the anger, that's active, right? Or we're lost in some emotion and, and, uh, and um, overwhelmed by it, and we move away. We move our attention somewhere else. That's active mindfulness. So we're, we're making active choices and moving the attention in ways that are wise. You could call this skillful means. And so it's a kind of um, using mindfulness to manage the wildness of this heart, body, and mind. And it is pretty wild, so sometimes we need some management, right? Grounding in the feet, that would be active mindfulness, making a choice to move the attention in that way. The challenge with this kind of mindfulness is that without heart, it can turn into controlling controlling our experience and trying to fix ourselves. So it can become kind of demanding. <laughs> like, to the breath, you must stay on the anchor. Or um, you must not feel this. Uh, um, so, so it can start having a, a rigidity to it that isn't free. When it comes from wisdom, you could say there's freedom there. We're making a choice that's wise to do certain things that support our practice. But, but when it, it turns into um, demands, then it's not free. If you find yourself in that mode, sometimes we're so used to it that we don't even recognize it. It's, it can be quite like just normal behavior to try to boss ourselves around, right? That's what it is. We boss ourselves around. Um, but if you notice it, and, and you can notice it because you're usually, there's some frustration happening or tension happening, you could try an experiment. You could try asking your heart what to do instead of following what your mind is telling you. The mind tends to be really bossy. <laughs> the heart, it, well, I think it usually has a little more tolerance and um, not quite so bossy. So you could ask your heart what it wants. Like, what do you want me to do right now? Just an experiment. See what happens. <laughs>
The other thing about active mindfulness is that sometimes um, it it gets so busy that we forget the intimacy part. <laughs> and it's important. Sometimes it's really important. I'm not saying that we shouldn't uh, you know direct the mind and manage it. We definitely should, especially when we're feeling um, overwhelmed. But sometimes we're so busy that we forget to feel and to experience our life. In fact, maybe that's how we live most of the time. And so receptive mindfulness, you could say, it's not its not going out and trying to do anything. It's more being than doing. You could say active is mindfulness is doing something and receptive mindfulness is, is more like being or or receiving um, the expression of life in the moment. It's more like yin mindfulness. So it's a kind of resting in intimacy with our experience. And when we feel more stable, it's great to turn in this direction and let let it, let let life in. Let it let ourselves be touched. And then we can get even kind of more subtle with this active and um, receptive mindfulness. Like, for example, let's take a, a taste, a taste, a mouthful of, um, trying to think of something we ate recently, a mouthful of tater tots. <laughs> that was a surprising experience. <laughs> but it kind of fit with the Midwest. <laughs> so, so there's one way that, um, this is a slightly different angle, but it's similar. There's one way that we know what a tater tot is, and we kind of know what they taste like, right? So um, we eat a tater tot, and, and we kind of mostly eat our idea of a tater tot. But with yin mindfulness and more receptive mindfulness, the kind of resting back and receiving does a tater tot really taste like? Well, it's not the same at the beginning as the end, right? I wasn't being super mindful at lunch, but I remember it was salty at the beginning, and it's less salty at the end. Um, so so we, we <coughs> receive the experience, and then we see it as um, much more alive. There's that intimacy. Intimacy with the tater tot. <laughs> it's kind of going back to this conceptual thing again, because we have the concept of a tater tot, and a, and a concept kind of kills it. It stabilizes it. This is a tater tot. <laughs> And um, that's useful to know how many tater tots you want to take. I can't believe I'm talking about tater tots. <laughs> it wasn't my plan. Um, <laughs> but with receptive uh, kind of mindfulness, um, we don't know what a tater tot is. 
we've never eaten this tater tot. And we see how um, that experience is. And, it, you know, there's a kind of magic that comes in the world from this kind of receptive, open mindfulness. There's an unknowing that comes in a, in a very... Um, it's a wild, it's a kind of wild way. We don't pin anything down. And really, that's the truth, is we can't pin anything down. But we try. That's that's the conceptual mind. And, and yeah, it's useful. I'm not going to throw out our conceptual mind. That wouldn't be a good idea. Um, but we expand. You could say what we're talking about here is expanding our, our possibilities. And seeing about experiencing the world in um, more intimate ways. So active, this kind of active mindfulness is good for management. It's good for figuring out how things work and how to deal with the life around us. When we're scattered, it's good for kind of directing the mind back. And then the more receptive mindfulness is good for the, for the more intimacy and getting to know things more closely and seeing, of course, incessant change, the fluidity. And, and as we move closer in this way, things start to lose their density because of the truth of change. What happens is that life gets lighter. Concepts are heavy. (laughs) Intimacy is light. And sometimes I say that with, with this receptive mindfulness, we become more co-participants in life rather than managers of life. We're fully embedded. We rest in belonging. We heal the alienation. We allow ourselves to be vulnerable and to be touched by life. Less control. Control, it can't hide as well in intimacy. See, control can hide um, more easily in kind of the doing kind of mindfulness. Like we think we're directing our attention somewhere, but then we find that we're actually trying to control. (laughs) Um, When we have this receptive mindfulness, control can't hide, can't hide in there. Our, our attempts to grasp and to push away are seen more clearly from that receptive space. So we could think of this more receptive mindfulness as um, listening. And if you remember from last night, listening is a form or way of expressing love. Listening is a way of infusing 
our practice with kindness and love. So we listen to our experience more than command it. And then when it's too much, then we then we wisely and skillfully manage our experience. So we're not trying to make that kind of a bad thing. Ray Bradbury has a quote that I love. He said, life should be touched, not strangled. (laughs) You've got to relax, let it happen at times, and at other times move forward with it. So the risk is that our practice turns into trying to fix ourselves, right? And then... um, and then we start strangling life. <laughs> we start, you know, clamping down on the expression of life through this being at this moment, at this time. Sometimes I think of ourselves as vehicles for life to manifest. It's just this body taking its turn, manifesting anger. We can hold it with a kind of lightness. There's a story from um, a book called What's Worth Knowing. It's um, interviews with uh, individuals from 70 to 90 plus years old. And an 86-year-old woman describes this. One morning I was sitting at my kitchen table staring into space. It was one of those windy days when the sun keeps coming out and going in. All of a sudden a sunbeam crossed my kitchen table and lit up my crystal salt shaker. There were all kinds of colors and sparkles. It was one of the most beautiful sights I'd ever seen. But you know, that very same salt shaker had been on that kitchen table for over 50 years. (laughs) Surely there must have been other mornings when the sun crossed the table like that, but I was too busy getting things done. I wondered what else I'd missed. I realized this was it. This was grace. So you could say that that experience of the salt shaker and all those colors was the experience of emptiness. There were no barriers. There was no separation. Usually, it was just a salt shaker. But in that moment, she called it grace, and it is a kind of grace. Um, There was this uh, receptivity to the vibrant display of life in that moment. We can live that way more in the mystery, the beauty, the um, the unknowing. When I flew in the other day, uh, flew in probably over this building, <laughs> flew in over Wisconsin in the late afternoon. The light was, uh, the sun was getting close to setting, and it was. 
shining over the fields and a field's flat, right? Isn't that what a field is like? <laughs> but it was it was I because of the way the light was coming in, you could see all the variations in the fields and so that they weren't flat at all. They were um, they undulated and and uh, yeah, they were completely different than my idea of a field because I was seeing rather than seeing what was happening rather than seeing my idea of a field. And then as I was coming in over the metropolitan area, uh, the sun was hitting all the car sh- window shields. It was just sparkling diamonds like, ooh, like all over the place just because of the timing. It would have been so easy to miss that. There's a kind of magic in this world when we relax our perception and receive. The other day I was teaching a retreat in our community and um, we were talking some about this same theme. And one, and, and I, I often say, you know, that life is really wild and that, it, that landing in the present moment is no small task. <laughs> I just was talking about all the kind of beauty, right? But there's, there's the whole other part of the present moment that that that's um, painful, right? Jazz was talking about that some this morning. And one woman, she she raised her hand and she said, um, "I never realized how hard it is to like be just to land in the present moment." And we figured out that it was so hard because to be fully present is wholly receptive and that that feels vulnerable. See, we like more activity, we like more action, we like more doing because um, we feel in control. We have a grip on things. But in the kind of receptive, allowing, being touched by life mode, it's pretty vulnerable because you don't know what's coming next, right? Because life is so wild. It's kind of both, sometimes I call it exquisite vulnerability because it's the same thing that allowed her to see the salt shaker, right? So, But it's also the same thing that, that suddenly rage arises. Where did that come from? So what we what we do with this kind of mindfulness is we build we build our our vulnerability tolerance. And part of that comes just from all the slugging away that you're doing. Because as we meet this full expression of life that can happen in, in one single sitting or one yogi day, as we're as we just figure out how we can open to it. 
we start to trust our capacity to be vulnerable, to be touched. Vulnerable as in touched. Vulnerable means that we, we can be touched, our hearts can feel. We can let things in, we can let things happen. In some ways, I think maybe all of practice is about um, developing our tolerance for vulnerability. We try to protect ourselves by hanging on and pushing away and dulling out the great hatred and delusion. Because the vulnerability is unacceptable. But when the vulnerability is acceptable, those, you could say, those shieldings of the heart and mind can start to soften, dissolve, get a little less dense and a little more spacious. And then as that spaciousness happens, there's increased vulnerability, but increased um, interbeing with life, emptiness. The way I can talk about this, um, comparing to birds, I'm a big bird fan, <laughs> I love birds. So I would say that um, a lot of times we approach meditation like a woodpecker. And so um, a woodpecker just kind of is banging it out, right? Like boom, 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 boom. <laughs> that's, that's very active. <laughs> um, or if it's not a woodpecker, it's a um, blue jay. You know, they kind of bossy and push people, push at people, push birds around. And, um, yeah, so so we're kind of, like, forceful like that. And at times, there's times to do that. But I find myself thinking, what if our meditation were more like the song of the wood thrush? Now, for those of you who don't know, the wood thrushes, um, they're those birds that sing in the woods, I truly don't know if they sing in the city or not. Um, But they're like a flute. They're lyrical. They're ethereal. And, um, mm. how would you describe a woodrush song, Jazz? (laughs) Am I doing all right? Ethereal. Ethereal, yeah. And you don't see woodrushes very much. They're brown. They blend in. But when you hear one, you're touched, you know it's beautiful. So what if our, I think of that as like receptive mindfulness. So maybe we should bring more wood thrush into our meditation, or maybe both. Maybe they can both live there, the woodpecker and the, and the wood thrush. They both have their part to play in the ecosystem of our meditation. 
But most of us, we kind of just keep drumming it out. And um, we could bring in some Udrash. Or another um, example I think of sometimes is a drummer and a flute player. So, um, you know, the drummer says, sets the beat. A drummer's a good thing, you know. And then the flute, flautist, um, is the more lyrical part. And if you just have the flautist, it can be beautiful, but if you just have the flautist too, it can get, ooh, it can start getting, you know, so the drum beat helps keep it together. But if you just have the drum beat, it kind of gets a little intense. <laughs> so, so it's the same as the wood thrush and the woodpecker living together. We can have the drummer and the flautist together. <coughs> Think about um, our practice in that way. The um, Burmese masters talk about um, aiming and sustaining each moment of, of our practice. There's an aiming of the mind and the sustaining. And you could think of the aiming as the woodpecker and the sustaining as the um, wood thrush. So there's a way that our attention kind of gathers around what's happening. And then we receive what's happening. But we often forget the receiving part, right? We're just so busy gathering. <laughs> it's the same thing we want to aim and sustain. The Burmese master's called the sustained rubbing the object. <laughs> so it's that intimacy, that closeness, right? Active, receptive. They work together. Mind concentration and mindfulness work together. I think of concentration like yet if we get to the park and mindfulness we smell the roses. So there's this active component and the receptive. But now that we've arrived at the park, we don't have to keep trying to arrive at the park. We're here. We can smell the roses. <laughs> we can receive the experience of life. Well, it's starting to get a little light here, so... started in my tradition they had something called the 70% rule and you're only supposed to make 70% effort in your practice stretch 70% now when I first heard this I was like they're not talking about me <laughs> I'm a 100% kind of yeah 105, 110 but not 70 and, and I, I really, I was a little arrogant, I guess, but I just couldn't go with it. And um, what, what uh, I started 
fantasy, however, was that when I was making what I called full effort, that there was a certain kind of tension that would come in, that when I would back off to 70%, I would find out what I was feeling. Like when I did 100, I wouldn't know what I was feeling. I backed off to 70. And that's why I didn't like it, of course. Um, I wasn't, I didn't want to feel. <laughs> it's hard work to feel. <laughs> um, but I really started to really appreciate that. I started to appreciate 70%. And the kind of more integrated practice that I had when I allowed myself to feel what was happening as I was doing the different Qigong exercises that moved my energy in different ways. So, so it's back to that vulnerability, right? The vulnerability of the more receptive form that we let our life in. We let life manifest, we open, we soften. Oh, when Chaz was saying soften, I say that all the time. It's, it's, it's also a softening process, right? That 70% is softer than the 100%. Now, that said, there are times when 100% effort is exactly what you need. <laughs> Full ardency, right? Sometimes we really have to just Dig, for, dig deep for, for our commitment, right? So it's not like it's always right. But a lot of us need to learn that 70% rule and how to rest back and receive. All right, I think I got through most of the stuff I wanted to. <laughs> There's a quote that I want to end with, and of course they're going to start beeping again because that's what they did yesterday. It's like, all right, come on, you guys. But this is pretty short. <laughs> it's such an interesting end to a term talk. <laughs> so this is from somebody named Hamid Almas. We don't trust that if we relax, we will have the capacities, we will have the intelligence, we will have the strength, and we will have the compassion that we need to deal with our lives. We don't trust that reality as it is is fundamentally fine and will work for us and support us without any interference on our part. Basic trust is learning that life is manageable, is workable, that we can relax into it and just let it be. It is that trust that the universe itself supports us and that we have the inner resources to deal with whatever life presents us. Basic trust means trusting enough to let your mind stop, to be silent within. Trust to let yourself be silent within. Knowing this Knowing this, if there is something you need to know, the knowing will come. It means trusting that if you need to do something, you'll be able to do it. 
It means accepting and trusting the silence, the stillness, the beingness. All right, dear friends, let's sit for a second. And sometimes at the end of a Dharma talk, I recommend it. Well, you know, was there one or two things that resonated that, that maybe you want to take with you to try out something or a perspective to try out? And then let the rest go. You don't have to keep it all. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.